Intimon Theater presents Here, that's H-I-R, Taylor Mac's sly, subversive comedy about a vet returned from the wars only to encounter a different war zone, a household in revolt. Now through March 25th, check out Here, H-I-R, presented by Intimon Theater. Grab tickets online at www.intimon.org backslash H-I-R. And while you're on your way to the theater... Swing by our sponsor, Horizon Books, serving Seattle book lovers for 47 years with the finest collection of secondhand literature in the city. Mention Upstones at the register for a 10% discount. Our sponsors are Intimon Theater and Horizon Books, and this is Upzones. Things are changing. Things are changing. You have to elect yourself, Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it. What's good, Upzoners? This was going to be an interesting week. We, we got Marcos Martinez, really cool guy. I actually, I didn't know, I didn't know him. He came into the studio through some mutual connections I had no idea what to expect and he turned out to be just really approachable and down to earth I, I subsequently after we interviewed uh, last week I, I bumped into him in a fried chicken shop he's just a real nice guy um, we had him in because in addition to the interesting work and, and story that he has we we knew that the DACA deadline was looming and we knew that there was going to be some some trouble afoot and as it turns out just in the past week the Supreme Court has sort of taken the teeth out of the current occupant of the Oval Office's attempt to harm, alienate, and otherwise just generally marginalize all brown and or people born outside of this country. As it turns out, while the courts, uh, the lower courts are considering what they're going to do, DACA stands. But the interview was worth it, and I think it's pretty relevant to kind of where we are as a city. We are trying really hard to be a sanctuary city. We're trying really hard to be a progressive place a welcoming place, a cosmopolitan place. We can't just grow the top 10% of the economic ladder. It's challenging. It's hard. It's not always easy. And it's not just Seattle. It's it's the entire region. So so Marcos had a lot to say. And, uh, well, you know, one of the things that, <laughs> that we, Brandon and I, when we're putting these things together, we, we joke that we're in the Numos basement. We're actually next door to Numos, but we are in downtown Cap Hill. And it's loud. It's frenetic. And people are in and out. And we're in the side room of a bookstore. And I've actually had some of our shows. You can hear people asking how much books are. There's just noise. But the mics we have, they're, they're pretty strong. And they, they cut out most of the noise. <laughs> but this week, for whatever reason, Horizon Books is, 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 again, right next to Numos, right under some of the other shops there, uh, old school building. And there was some hammering. Man, there was some construction, and I felt like Lawrence O'Donnell in there, man. It's just like every 30 seconds, do, 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 and there's nothing we could do, so we just kind of plowed through it, and you'll hear some hammering sounds. Frankly, I just think that's what UpZones is. It's just a bunch of crazy city, noisy, dense, cosmopolitan, loud people in a crazy, cosmopolitan, loud, dense studio trying to do a podcast. And then uh, a lot of you who listen may not know that my dog uh, is a Shiba Inu named Kanye, that's a long story I'll tell some other time. He comes with me to the studio when I do these interviews. And, well, he's a little food hungry, and he got himself stuck in a mouse trap. Um, thankfully, it was just the adhesive kind. No, uh, no, it would have been a very different scene if it had been the other kind. But no, he just he went after a snack, and he got himself stuck to a glue pad. 
So, I, you know, I left it in there. It was, it was kind of funny between the hammering and my dog almost losing a limb. Uh, it, was a, it was a misadventure, but Marcos was awesome the whole time and he just laughed it off. And we did a great interview, touched on a lot of issues facing the Latino community here in Seattle. So here he is, Marcos Martinez. So I have this theory that once we really get going, I won't even be in the room and we'll get set up and I'll walk in and I'll be like, hey, how you doing? And that'll <laughs> right. be the start of the interview. But for now, we, ne- good, we need to just kind of fake it till we make it. Oh, nice job. Yeah. Oh, you signed up? You signed the table? Not yet. Oh, okay. Well, we'll get you. We got to get everybody. I don't think the listeners really know too much about that, but I right. built a table. I'm, so uh, you're I'm a, very proud of it. A woodworker? Oh, that's my side thing. Yeah, a little bit. That's I, nice. I, it's, it, they actually have a term sawdust therapy. And some uh, of the uh, political climate right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a lot of sawdust <laughs> in my life. But so we're just trying to get everybody to sign it. I think you'll be the fifth or sixth guest. So that's pretty cool. Nice. I'm here with uh, Marcos Martinez. No relation, but a great last name. Right. They say in Puerto Rico, there's two phone books. Have you heard this? No. A to Z and Martinez. <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, you grew up in L.A., you said. I grew up in Los Angeles. So yes. you were... Head off to so I could get the hell out. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, only because you know a young person has to go out and seek their seek their seek their own way. Pull the sword from the stone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Get out of their parents' house. That's right. Same thing here. So you and then you moved over, and so you were. Gosh, that would have been the '80s. You were. A, a, I graduated high school in 1977. 77. Okay. And I left for college. I went to. Up to Northern California, as far as I could get from my parents' house and still be in the state. And luckily, California is a long state, a long rectangular state. So I went up to Santa Cruz, Mm -hmm. to UC, to the University of California at Santa Cruz. And I I was not a very academically focused student. Mm -hmm. So I was at Santa Cruz for two years, didn't really have a major, but I met my future wife there. Okay. Your and future You haven't married her yet. No, I did. I hadn't <laughs> married her then. Give me a hard time. But um, the, the two of us went up to uh, Humboldt State University. Mm-hmm. Okay, transfer. Got it. Yes. Now, I know one thing about Humboldt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a dry county. Well, I mean, maybe it's dry, but it's a, it's a kind of a hotbed for the marijuana industry. Well, back then, uh, it was said to be behind the Sinsamia curtain. Okay. See, back then, there was this thing called Sinsamia, and that was like a big deal, that marijuana without seeds. Sinsamia. That was like the birth of the bud. Right, right. And, I mean, I don't smoke marijuana anymore. It's yeah. kind of lost its charm on me, unfortunately. Now yeah. that it's legal. Now that it's legal. Now that it's legal, I'm not anymore? into it anymore. Yeah. I don't. No, I'm getting I don't enjoy too. it anymore. Yeah, but so that so that was cool. So you were having a good time. You were learning. What what did you focus on? Like, what was your major? I eventually uh, majored in journalism. By the time I so I, I bounced around, and to me, going to college was a way to see the country. So I went to two different schools in California, and then I eventually settled on the University of New Mexico mm-hmm. in Albuquerque. Right, and there I declared a journalism major, but. I was really interested in taking a lot of different sorts of social science courses. Mm-hmm. And 
and, and studying journalism, but really I was interested in uh, different sorts of social studies, uh, you know, women's studies, Native American studies, and just different sorts of classes. Because one thing I learned in journalism class is that, you know, you can learn, you can learn to write news copy, and that's not that hard to do. Right. But you really, one of my journalism professors told me, you really ought to go out and learn something about the world. You really ought to go out and study politics or study world affairs or study geology or study something else so that you actually know something about the world. Right, right. The dog's being really bad here. We got the dog in the studio and he's, <laughs> he's jumping, jumping after some food. Maybe we should interview the dog. Oh, he got a he got a mouse trap, huh? Yeah, a glue trap. Oh, that's great. Well, is that gonna hurt him? That's gonna. Hurt him. I don't know. Kanye, Psst. hey. Right. Uh oh. That's all right. Wow, buddy. Uh oh. Thankfully, this isn't live. Oh no. Want some scissors? Oh, there it goes. I wonder if something like peanut butter will get it off. Yeah. Alright, we'll figure that out. We'll see if he starts reacting weird, turning into a mouse. Anyway, we'll edit all that out. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> might be the most interesting you might part of the whole thing. <laughs> so yeah, so you're so this is what I'm hearing you say is that you um, you're learning your place in the world it sounds like you really had a strong interest in learning the stuff they weren't necessarily teaching uh in traditional history so you're learning about native history i'm assuming chicano history all the different uh critical theories right and so how does that inform what you do next which i think was radio journalism is that right yeah i i gravitated towards uh radio journalism while i was at uh humboldt state university i started working at their uh, campus radio station but, you know, actually even going back, if I could go back to my formative years growing up in East Los Angeles. See, I graduated high school in 1977. And even before that, there was a lot of activism, obviously, mm -hmm. in those years mm -hmm. in the 1970s. And as a young person, I was really drawn to a lot of what was going on in the community. And at that time, there was a lot of activism in the uh, United Farm Workers Movement. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that came to the city because we had the boycotts that were brought by the UFW against, against Gallo wine, against the grapes, against lettuce. So I actually got involved in the East Los Angeles Support Committee for the United Farm Workers. And we would go to the local supermarkets on the weekends and we would pick it in front of the supermarkets and ask people not to buy the grapes, not to buy the lettuce, not to buy whatever the the product was that was that was the the subject of a boycott, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so that was part of my growing up. I actually grew up, you know, I was it was interesting. I was in elementary school and junior high school when the war in Vietnam was going on, mm -hmm. but even at that young age, I had a an awareness and a consciousness. Unfortunately, I had some teachers in school who actually talked to us about uh, what was going on. And those and so, are the ones you remember. Yes. To, to talk to you like a human. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so those were formative experiences for me. 
And we had in East Los Angeles in 1971, and gosh, I was all of 11 years old, but in East LA, a massive demonstration against the war in Vietnam. It was mm -hmm. the Chicano moratorium against the war in Vietnam because what the community was experiencing was that many young men from our community were going off to fight bravely, as, as they understood it, to defend their country in this war and being decorated for their for their brave service, but yet coming home and facing discrimination, mm -hmm. not being able to have an educational opportunity, not being able to find work, etc. And so it was this this contradiction and this this sort of clash. So there was this huge demonstration against the war in Vietnam in 1971, and it just turned into this huge fracas. It was a, a riot. The community was attacked by the police. There was a prominent community journalist named Ruben Salazar who died that day. He mm -hmm. was actually struck by a, a, a tear That's gas right. I remember that projectile. Story. Yeah. Right. That That's was fired by the police. It was very, very rough. And so, and this your family was involved in this, or this was something that you came into on your own, or this is something that I knew about. My family was like didn't have anything to do with any of that. Mm -hmm. My family were my family are Mexican immigrants, and you know a lot of people who come from, uh, especially from Latin countries, where there's a a good deal of political repression, uh, really don't necessarily want to have. So Put your head down and go to Anything work. to do yeah. with uh, with political activism. It's the second generation. It's the next generation right. that really sort of gets involved with Absolutely. stuff that's going on. So anyway, all of that was part of what I think has motivated me to be interested or involved with. Has kind of shaped me, I guess, in my thinking and the sorts of things that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, but that leads you to now you're doing news radio, right? So yes. After after college, you're doing news radio. Right. What what was the programming? Were you doing like straight news? Were you doing talk radio? Yeah. So uh, in New Mexico, I worked at the the campus uh, NPR station. Oh, okay. Which was really kind of a hybrid station. So it was a as an NPR station. We ran all of the NPR radio shows. But then we also had very community-based uh, news and public affairs programs mm -hmm. where we would go out into the community and report on community issues and concerns. So we would cover, you know, press conferences. We would do talk shows with community activists and talk about issues around environmental justice or different concerns that the community would be raising. And uh, one of the great things about this radio station was that we were able to, to open up a space for the community members to come in and get trained to become journalists themselves and produce radio programming and create programs that Sounds that fantastic, we could probably use that here. Yeah, <laughs> our, exactly. what we're doing here. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's Brandon over. Um, so, yeah, how does that translate to what you're doing in Seattle? Right. So I left Albuquerque after working in community radio there for 20 years. I left Albuquerque and came to Seattle, and I've been in Seattle now for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And when I landed here, I was so, ready to. So do you're a big gentrifier, is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm a yeah. huge gentrifier. <laughs> came here on my on my public radio earnings. Yeah. Uh, right. And I've been here for 10 years, and as soon as I got here, the economy crashed. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, that was 08 or so, 09? Yeah, so. I ran in around 08 I got yeah. here. Right. I've been working in nonprofits. I was really interested in doing something different mm -hmm. than public radio. And so I've been working in nonprofits, and I sort of landed 
in nonprofit organizations that serve specifically the Latino community and Latino immigrants. And when I first landed here, uh, I got a job at an organization called Entre Hermanos. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of happenstance, you know. I, and I will say that part of the reason I moved up here was I was in a relationship at, at the time. I had a girlfriend uh, who had gotten a job up here teaching at UW. Mm -hmm. And I have two adult sons, and they were both going to school up here in this area. Mm -hmm. I had one son who was uh, going to school in eastern Washington, and my other son was going to school in Portland. So two, my two kids were up in this region. You close, you close still with them? Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of them's still here in Seattle. The other one's back in Albuquerque. Okay. That relationship didn't last. Okay. But my relationship with Seattle has blossomed. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, so I ended up uh, getting hired to run a small nonprofit that serves the Latino uh, LGBTQ community. Okay. And mainly doing HIV prevention and uh, providing services and advocacy and community building for the Latino queer community. And so was, this, was it just this idea that you had been involved in organizing and you had a sense of what just community training, given what you were doing over with the, the local NPR station? Is that the transition there? Or? It, you know, it was just a completely serendipitous. Yeah. It was just a completely like fell in my lap kind of change mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i was up here visiting one time it took me a really long time to find a job in seattle i'll tell you i was living in albuquerque and i was ready to move up here and i applied for so many jobs i had such a hard time finding a job in seattle and i was up here visiting one time i was up here visiting my partner at the time and i met a guy who was a grant writer and he said, hey, this nonprofit is looking for a new executive director. You should go talk to them. And I thought, what the hell? You know, I've already applied for 100 other jobs. Why not? And so I went and talked to this organization, Entre Hermanos. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I didn't think I was that qualified because I had never worked for an LGBT organization. Right. Uh, I had never worked for an HIV organization. Mm -hmm. But I thought, what the heck, you know, I... I'm going to go apply. I'm going to go present myself. And so I did, and we talked, and we hit it off, and it turned out that it was actually not a hard transition to go from being a public radio, you know, sort of mid-level manager to running a small community-based nonprofit organization. Did you have any, any fears about I, – I don't presume uh, to make any assumptions about your uh, identity or your life, but just you in a heterosexual relationship, did you did – you, have any fears about being perceived as misrepresenting the community that you were supposedly representing? No, I think what I brought to the job was just a sincere interest in working for the community mm -hmm. and and just working hard to to represent that community to the best of my ability and to to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, to really uh, listen and and do the job as best I could. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. more of that. Exploring yeah, we're, have, uh, <laughs> we're having this like great <laughs> conversation, <laughs> and the dog is just being a real shit right <laughs> now. Fine. So he's, he's being uh, a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so, I mean, you'd must have done that for a few years, right? Four or five years. Eight years. Eight years. Oh, geez. Okay, Eight years. Yeah. I lasted there. Yeah, yeah. So while I was working at Entre Hermanos, and you know, you realize when I first moved to Seattle, I thought it was a big city, and yeah. it took me about five minutes to realize Seattle is not a big city. Well, we're getting there now. Right. We're, we're, we're in... starting to get there, but yeah. I mean, ten years ago. Yeah. 
you know, I realized, oh, Seattle's not a big city. And one of the ways is that I looked around to see, okay, well, who are the organizations that serve the Latino community? Right. And really, there's just a handful. There's more now, but 10 years ago, there's really just a handful. So I kind of went around and, and met all of, the, all of the nonprofits that are serving the Latino community. And so I met you know, folks at El Centro de la Raza and at CIMAR and at Consejo and at Casa Latina. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of these great organizations doing this wonderful work. And those were all relationships that, because when you work in, a, when you work in nonprofits, you realize that it's really collaborations yeah, yeah. that allow you to to do more. Right. right? And you make a network just because you're in exactly. the same industry. Podcasters don't meet each other because we're all in our mother's basements. Right. So it's hard. Whose basement is this, by the way? <laughs> this is the, the Numo's basement. Okay. That's great. This is a historical basement. <laughs> that's awesome. What is the central point of advocacy or the central point of conflict, I'll even say, for Latino issues and for Casa Latina in Seattle right now in 2018? I think it's the way that, you know, people talk about inequity and i think it's really the way that the economic system is unfolding at this point in our history in this and it's not just seattle it's in our country and you know immigrant communities are very like acutely affected but a lot of people are feeling this that you know there's so much wealth that's being generated and it's all going to the people at the top and so you know we have these communities that are just marginalized that are just not that are contributing so much work mm -hmm. you know that are helping to generate a lot of the wealth that are putting in a lot of work but just are not reaping the rewards you know commensurate with the work that yeah, they are contributing to building you know the society that we live in and so i think that's a huge thing right now obviously the immigration debate is is huge you know and it's been i mean it's been for for decades for longer than we've been alive this has been an unresolved issue but recently we've had some I guess surprising news, right? I mean, the cooperation with ICE issue, right? You know, and I'll be honest with you, this is an important issue to me, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say, I don't really fully comprehend what happened. Well, there's a new story every day, so <laughs> there was a story today. So on on the day that we are taping this, mm. there was a story in the news where ICE contacted Seattle City Light to try to get somebody's personal information, somebody's name and address, or or something like that. Right. And in this case, uh, Seattle City Light took a very appropriate action and they said, well, hold on, ICE, we're referring this to the mayor's office. And here in Seattle, Mayor, mayor Durkin had um, you know, made a policy that said, if ICE comes calling to any city department, those requests have to come through the mayor's office for a legal review. <clears throat> And in fact, when the mayor's office reviewed this request from ICE, they f they found out that it was, in fact, bullshit. That it was not a proper request. It was not based on any kind of criminal activity or suspicion of criminal activity. There was no warrant signed by a judge. There was no proper, it didn't meet any kind of legal standard. Somebody in the division just wanted, just had a hunch. It was a fishing trying expedition. To, trying to get what he could. Or, yeah. You know. 
And this is what we're seeing from ICE right now is that they are basically circumventing legal processes that they're supposed to go course, through. And they're just kind of going around and, and, and running amok. So are, are you at the center of some of the advocacy <clears throat> against that? Yes, yeah. absolutely. One of the things we're trying to do here is just say, hey, if this particular issue on this particular week's episode is important to you, here's what you can do. What's going on right now for people to get engaged and to be involved? So we are part of the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network. And this is a network of probably close to 100 organizations. And it was formed within days of the 2016 elections. Immediately after the elections and Trump's election, a bunch of us got together and said, you know, we got to do something to protect our immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. And so we've been organizing and mobilizing and doing a lot of different things to to resist the attacks on our communities. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as far as things that people can do, I would highly recommend, you know, you can go online and look up the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network and you'll find lots of information there. There's a hotline that people can call if they see or suspect that they're seeing ICE activity. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, all kinds of other resources as well that people can plug into to be more informed, uh, to know what's going on. On the website. On the, yes. Yeah. Okay, great, yes. great. Where do you see, you're the center of your own world. Where do you see Casa Latina? Where do you see a lot of these issues being in two years, three years? Well, that's a good question. You know, there is a lot of work that's that's going on right now. And, and you see it happening on many different uh, fronts and on a lot of different levels. I think that, you know, we can talk about immigration. You know, we just had a very, very cruel sort of turn where the United States Senate took up the issue of immigration mm -hmm. only to utterly fail. This is the DACA issue. Yes. Yeah. Yes. To utterly fail to approve any of the options that they had before them to resolve that issue. And, you know, when we air, we'll probably be right at right around the time when DACA is supposed to expire March 5th. Right. Actually, that's interesting. You're as close to an expert as anyone I'm going to talk to. <laughs> what happens on March 6th? Well, what happens is that, you know, people will continue to be losing their, their DACA status, but it doesn't mean that we will stop fighting for uh, having Congress take some action to mm -hmm. remedy the situation, to come up with an immigration reform that will enable DACA participants to have a legal status. And not only DACA participants, but, you know, the rest of their uh, immigrant families sure. to also have an immigration status and to address this issue in a more comprehensive manner as well. Why should the average, you know, native born citizen of Seattle care? Why do we care? What, what, what happens if everyone gets sent home, quote, quote unquote, sent home or sent right. out? Why should people care? Well, I think that people are not going to get sent home. There was a time when we, before we didn't have DACA. You know, it just creates a lot of uncertainty in the community. It's unjust. So mm -hmm. I guess, I don't know if you care about... Uh, to doing the right thing. If you care about justice. <laughs> God forbid, yeah. But also, you know, what something I mentioned earlier, that immigrants are people that contribute to building our society. And, but I also don't want to fall down the, the, into that narrative of saying that, you know, immigrants work hard and they deserve, you know, X, Y, and Z. 
you know, immigrants are people, they're human beings. And, you know, if, even if an immigrant isn't getting up at five o'clock every morning and working a 10 hour shift and, right. you know, just working their butt off, even if they're just like an average person, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Uh, it's, it's the snooze button a couple times. <laughs> they still deserve, you know, a dignified life. Right. Oftentimes, I should point out too, immigrants come to this country because they are fleeing conditions of violence, conditions of uh, economic violence in their home country. Gang warfare that some might say was started by policies that the United States yes. adopted and collapsed entire economies in you know, El Salvador, Guatemala, right? I mean, yes, thank Honduras. you for connecting those dots. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Drug war, I mean, you <clears throat> name it, right? Yes, our foreign policy is very complicit in creating conditions in other countries that drive people to come here to in come the first here. place. You know, people don't wake up in their, for, in their home countries and say, gee, I'm going to go to America. I mean, people go to extreme lengths and put their lives at risk to get here. Yeah. Um, for a minimum wage job, usually. right? For like a, oftentimes for a really marginal kind of crappy existence, and I think people would not do that if they weren't in such dire circumstances uh, in their own countries. Yeah, of course. And and just to center it again around Seattle, what, do you know what the proportion of uh, Latinos in Seattle is? I've had some, I've seen different numbers. Yes, I was just looking at this the other day. I think it's about 9% in King County, okay. if I'm not mistaken. And that's probably a lot in Renton, I know, in su Southern King County, right? Yes, a lot of people. And again, just because of the way that uh, Seattle itself is becoming unaffordable, a lot of people have moved to South King County and even out to uh, Pierce County mm -hmm. and up to Snohomish County mm -hmm. and other mm -hmm. areas that are still uh, a little bit more affordable. Which ties into one of our last guests, a uh, guy named Jonathan Hopkins, the executive director of Commute Seattle, and he talks about how commuting is a social justice issue. Right. At the end of the day, if a, if a particular part of a city becomes more desirable, and it's going to become more expensive. That's like a human thing. Sure. Right? But if we as a culture and we as a city don't account for that and we don't provide infrastructure for our, and it's not just, it's not like transit is for our less fortunate. I, I have a I'm always very honest with my listeners. I have a nice white collar job, day job, and we get transit and we use it too. You sure. Know? So, I mean, it's for everybody, but, the, but transit becomes a social justice issue, especially for immigrant communities who are in blue collar work, who are maybe being pushed outside of the city core. And so it's all related. We Absolutely. All, we all have to urbanize together. Yeah. The further away you live from the city core, than the higher cost you have for transportation. Right. The harder it is to receive services, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So you're saying, okay, so that's where most of the work, but Casa Latina is very, I mean, you're located in Seattle. So has that become a phenomenon? Have you seen the, the community that you're trying to create become strained or fractured at all by the, frankly, gentrification? Yeah, so one of the things that we're doing actually is extending some of our services to mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. more re remote locations, partly in response to an uh, invitation. So we actually started working last year with the YMCA up in Everett mm -hmm. and taking some of our uh, women's leadership groups and some of our workers' rights trainings and uh, immigration know your rights trainings to to the Everett area and then also down to uh, Auburn and working with some community partners uh, in the Auburn area and then really thinking about at some point you know does it make sense for us to to locate another employment center in South King County right 
one one big piece of the puzzle though is that it really seems that most of the a lot of the employment opportunities are still in the central core of Seattle. Right. Which brings us back to your transportation yeah. issue, right? People That's a major still, issue. People live in the outer fringes, but they still need to get into Seattle where a lot of the jobs are. Of course. I should mention also that another one of the areas that we do a lot of work in is around wage theft. This is a huge issue for a lot of immigrant communities where people are taken advantage of by unscrupulous employers. And I was just reading an article about this the other day that, and this is, affects not just immigrants, but a lot of low-wage workers. So there's been such a push uh, all over the United States in recent years to raise the minimum wage. We had the fight for 15 here mm -hmm. in Seattle. Mm -hmm. That's been all over the United States. Uh, minimum wages have been rising. But then how do you make sure that the average worker out there is actually getting their, their 15, their $15 yeah, or, their 12, or whatever, whatever their wage is? Yeah, yeah. So there's a huge issue with making sure that that's happening. And, and how do you enforce that? You know, how are cities going to have the capacity or the resources to, I mean, because oftentimes what has to happen is a worker has to complain. Which, in of order course, to, then you risk losing your job. You risk losing your job. And cities may <clears throat> not have the, the, the staffing to to go out and respond to all those complaints or, or someone to, to follow up on all of that. What's happening in That's Seattle now? That's a huge issue. Front. Where's, where are we? A few years ago, the city created the Office of Labor Standards, which is a really progressive move to create an office. Because in Seattle, we have the minimum wage, we have paid sick leave, we have a variety of different uh, workers' rights ordinances. And so the city created this new office. And then, but the, the same problem is, you know, the, you know, not having enough staffing to really go out, enforce all of these new ordinances and make sure that, that everybody, that employers are following the rules. Yeah. One of the things the city has done, which is really helpful, though, is to they've awarded some grants to organizations to go out and educate employers. Because sometimes you, you if you want to give employers the benefit of the doubt, you might say, well, it may be that uh, with all of these new ordinances, maybe some employers just aren't up to speed on everything. Sure. So the city is doing a big educational piece now to make sure that employers are aware of all of the these new ordinances and their responsibilities so that and also so that they can't plead ignorance yeah it's right? a subtle it's, that's exactly <laughs> it's also a subtle way to put, say hey we're, we're watching right we're watching guys yeah that's interesting so what do you got coming up well i'm i, I can mention something that is in the far future sure coming up at the end of september we have our annual gala it's mm -hmm. called en camino and this is when we celebrate our community and our organization uh, we have our annual event at the Westin here in Seattle, and it's a really beautiful evening uh, when we get together to to celebrate our organization. Uh, honestly, it's a fundraiser. We mm -hmm. raise money for our yeah. organization. And that's one thing I will say about Seattle is that we have a really caring community that supports immigrants. I mean, as much inequity as we have here, we also have a lot of people here in Seattle who are really willing to come out and support our immigrant community, our organization really has tremendous, beautiful folks that support us and keep us going. I mean, this is a, one of the most international cities, especially relative to its size. I'm a New Yorker by birth. You know, right. I, I've been here years now, but that's a pretty international city, but that's 20 million people. You know, this is 2 million in the metro. Right. And I mean, what a 
wide swath of various east, south, central, southeast Asian, all across the Americas, eastern and western African in fairly large numbers. It's pretty cool. And so I think I could see a a real opportunity to come together. Um, So we like to end every show with a segment we call, If You Care About, Then You Should. Fill in the blanks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Man, this throws everybody off. I think if you care about making the world a better place, then you should really think about, you know, how the least among us, how the most marginalized people among us. And, you know, I really think a lot about people who are homeless in our community. Um, And especially during like these coldest and harshest winter months. I mean, I really think we have to do better and we have to do more. So I think if you care about your fellow human being, we have to demand more from our decision makers. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Marcos Martinez. Thanks Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure. Feliz lunes, amigos. That was Marcos Martinez of Casa Latina. Look up the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network at waimmigrantsolidaritynetwork.org to get involved. This has been Upzones. This week's sponsor was Intiban Theaters Here, that's H-I-R, and Horizon Books. All music by the Subcons. Dope opening poem sample by Anthony McPherson. Thanks to Rod, Dave, Abigail, and Kamira for the vocals. And thanks to our sound engineers, Brandon and Naboo. I'm your host, Ian Martinez, and this has been Upzones, a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week. My favorite.